Welcome back to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. You are listening to part two of Real Change, the Orchestra. Well, I think it's time to move on to probably the most imposing family of the orchestra, the brass section. These are really the arbiters of the brilliance and majesty of the orchestra, from the loudest fanfares to the tranquil sparkle. The brass family are the lead singers, and particularly in film, they are a fixture in this idiom. Absolutely. We'll move downward in score order, uh, starting with the horns in F, commonly referred to as the French horns. And that's quite appropriate because the French horns of any instrument in the brass family, they're almost sort of the mediator between the wind section and the brass section. And in some older ways of orchestrational thinking, some would almost consider the French horns as being a member of the wind section. But I can't help but think of a funny anecdote from Conrad Pope when he was talking about the French horns in terms of where we are today with film music. I think he said something like, the French horns, the weed guitar of the modern film orchestras. And in our contemporary music, we've touched on this in a couple of our episodes, the Ostinati episode in particular, it's horns, horns, horns all the time carrying our big, bold, sort of slow-moving anthemic melodies. Yeah, many of the heroic and powerful themes in the film orchestra come down to the French horns, and there is classical precedent for that in Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, meaning the Heroic Symphony, which is actually originally uh, dedicated to Napoleon, and he later changed (laughs) his mind about that, but it features this prominent horn fanfare and throughout the tradition of classical music and programmatic music the horn was associated to heroism and hunting i think especially in the context of opera but i really think it's one of the most versatile instruments in terms of timbre it supports a three and a half octave range from concert b1 to f5 The horn is interesting in terms of how it transposes because it's similar to the English horn. I guess they're both horns, so to speak, so that actually helps to remember transposition, but they transpose up a fifth in terms of what they're reading. Uh, And there are anywhere from four to eight horn players, sometimes upwards of 12 in orchestras that really want to have that powerful, quote-unquote, lead guitar horn sound. And in most concert orchestras, the standard tends to be four horns. I would say in film, standard is typically six horns. And we'll mention that it was a transposing instrument, but really these players are able to do incredible transpositions on the fly. There's something unique to the horn, which is that it's possible to stop the horn, meaning insert your hand into the bell of the instrument um, to sort of mute the sound. When that happens, that actually alters the pitch that's coming out of the instrument. And so these players on the fly will transpose the music in front of them. Well, there are many different transitions. The horns, they really are the rock stars because they're so adept at transposing, not just because of muting, but also there are differing traditions of whether horns should be written in concert key and transposed, or whether they're written in their own transposed keys. And 
horn players that are professional are capable of doing all of that, which is just amazing to me. Uh, they require incredible control of embouchure. It's the smallest or one of the smallest mouthpieces in the whole brass choir, and they're often asked to do for their instrument something that it was not intended to do. Often the horns are asked to play much higher than they were really intended to play. People forget that the horn actually has quite a low register. Not that it ought to be a bass instrument, but I think people tend to think of it as this lead male singer. Right. Yeah, and tend to write it in its tenor range, which is where it has quite a lot of power and control. But it's just very versatile, you know? Yeah, it's such a unique sound hearing the very bottom of the French horns. And when you blend that with, say, low trombones, it's really quite a powerful sound. The instrument is played by buzzing air against that small mouthpiece that I mentioned with three, sometimes four, depressible valves or keys that allow you access to all the chromatic pitches. It's interesting, originally horns could only play pitches in their natural harmonic series. You could think of almost like the way that a bugle works, all these open fifth in fourth melodies, um, because they were literally just cycling through their harmonic series and horn players back in the time of, say, Mozart and Haydn, they would have to switch out what were called crooks, which were the the tubing of their horn, in order to actually change the key and play pitches outside of that basic harmonic series. But now, of course, they do have valves, which allows access to any note they'd want. (laughs) And the horns are capable of creating such a variety of timbres, from the sort of mellow to the very snarly and biting. And they're also able to play what we call rips, which involve, like Will said, cycling through that harmonic series quickly. Yeah, really rapidly, usually upward. Uh, there's this great piece by a composer named Oscar Navarro where he's, it's basically a tone poem of Noah's Ark. And I remember when he gets to trying to characterize the elephants, he does these very characteristic horn rips, which almost literally sounds like the noise of an elephant. And as we've said, the sound of 2D unison horns belting out a melody really is the sound of modern film music. But there's, I think, an untapped potential of the horn section as a chordal texture. True, Which has been so significant going back to the classical literature. And I think, yeah, very underused in our current film. What's interesting, though, is I don't think horn players are necessarily complaining because it's fun to get to play (laughs) the melody. And for many, many decades and generations, horn players would kind of moan about their role as simply a chordal texture. You think about a waltz, quite often the horns are just playing chord tones on the two and three. Bop, 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 bop. I've had so many friends that are horn players that just detest playing waltzes for this reason. But it is interesting. There are some other changes in recording practice in a lot of current scores. There's the tradition called striping, which is essentially having the brass section or some of the brass section in an overdub playing their material without any of the rest of the orchestra. And often that's because they're looking for as loud of a sound as possible without getting into <laughs> long of a story. A lot of the sample libraries feature very loud fortissimo samples, particularly for French horns. And there's a bit of a chicken and the egg going on, which is, did the sound of those samples influence some of our current composers in wanting that 
crazy fortissimo on mm-hmm. every note, which has led to the necessity to to stripe some of these passages. So I think you're right, Will. There's in some ways a great moment for French horns because they're getting the melody, but it's also sometimes asking for kind of non-ensemble playing. In things that their instruments weren't designed to do. I want to quickly mention what's called the Wagner tuba or tubin. It's an instrument that was created for Richard Wagner's ring cycle of operas. It's another transposing brass instrument often played by a horn player and it's somewhere in between the horn and trombone in terms of timbre and color but yeah it's also played in a similar manner of using depressible rotary valves i just wanted to mention that because it does crop up in film music occasionally if you want to hear a nice example the rearrangement that brian tyler did of jerry goldsmith's universal theme he opens the theme with horns and then tubins take the next phrase and they're positioned on different sides of the stereo spectrum so it's a pretty nice contrast there well we have to talk about the trumpets The trumpets are unmistakable and unmissable in the orchestra. They're a transposing instrument in B-flat. Often in films, they're playing um, in C, which essentially means they're non-transposing. A trumpets also exist. They're, like I mentioned, kind of an evolution of the bugle. Trumpets also have three to four depressible keys for access to all chromatic pitches, and they sport a two and a half octave range from concert roughly E3 to C6. And many film trumpet players are able to transpose on the fly as well. There's a bit of a difference in tradition on either side of the Atlantic. On the LA side, there's been more of a trend towards using C trumpets. And in London, it's still very common to play everything with a B flat trumpet. So they're also really good at transposing because they'll read a score for C trumpet and play it with a B flat trumpet. And they just know to transpose up or down a whole step. Like almost all of the brass, they have a selection of mutes, but the trumpets, you could say, almost go overboard when it comes to the mutes. I used to be a trumpet player, and there's a whole mute culture among trumpet players, (laughs) particularly jazz trumpet players. Um, But in the world of films, these mutes become incredibly useful for creating different colors, sometimes comic, sometimes supposing to be, you know, an old throwback jazz sound, or sometimes for maybe creepy effects. You have straight mutes, kind of the de facto mute. It's very simple and unpretentious looking. It's this basic cone shape, and it's similar to almost the string mute. It creates just a thinner sound, reduces some of the overtones. Sort of a buzzier sound, and that's that's true for every part of the brass family with a straight it mute. It does make a slightly quieter sound than just the open bell of the trumpet, but it usually isn't used for volume restraint as much as it is timbre. You also have cup mutes, which look like that same conical shape yet they kind of open up towards the end it creates a little bit more of a sound like that Uh, you also have harmon mutes which we associate with a lot of jazz it became really popular with uh, miles davis actually um you know there's plunger mutes which literally uh were plungers the the rubber end of a plunger Yeah. yeah Uh, we have wah wah mutes, which have this little metallic attachment that allows it to yeah, open and close, yeah. um, which is the origin of the classic wah wah. Kind of sound. And sometimes that old sound is uh, taking advantage of uh, what they call a solo tone mute. 
similar to a Harmon in tone, but much more characteristic. If you think of any time uh, you're trying to send up the 30s or 40s, they usually pull those things out. Across the whole brass section, there's some other interesting commands that will sometimes appear in the music, either to play into the stand to try to reduce some of the sound, or sometimes uh, they'll ask for bells up or bells out, particularly with French horns. Right. Really playing there with uh, perceived level in the orchestra and sometimes location of sound as far as uh, capturing it in the microphones. Yeah, each of these mutes and each of these effects alter timbre in a different but notable way. Trumpets are often a melody instrument, and they're really unmissable in that regard. They're an essential part of the orchestral sound, but excellent composers and orchestrators can use trumpet in all kinds of colorful and interesting ways. They're known for being loud and heroic and forceful, but in films they're often asked to use odd or extended techniques, uh, particularly in horror films. A composer like Christopher Young comes to mind for his great use of uh, extended techniques over all the instrument groups, but particularly the trumpets in my mind. But they're unmistakable and essential to the modern orchestra. Moving to the next member of our brass family, uh, let's take a look at the trombones. Their pitch range is from E2 up to F5. We can think of them as the tenors of the brass section. They're a non-transposing instrument, and they're built a little bit differently of this a cylindrical bore compared to the conical instruments like the horn, and it leads to a much more open and sonorous tone. They're extremely powerful in the low register. They're really the primary ingredient in our wah sound. Uh, <laughs> trombones can be really loud in that low range, although there are some other great doubling instruments with them. And they're very appealing and can be quite sweet in the tenor range. Yeah, absolutely. And they can also be very forceful on a melody. Usually when you have horns playing something in full force, you typically don't want the trombones doubling or doing something quite too similar because it can become very brass heavy and overpowering. Yet there are instances that call for effects like that where you would have horns, trumpets, trombones, all doubling on a very similar line. But that starts to have kind of an overblown, over-orchestrated sound. There's a couple film composers that come to mind with that sound, but I don't <laughs> really want to name we names. Won't name names. And a lot of these doubling effects are very dependent on range or what we haven't referred to yet today, tessitura, which refers to the range of an instrument. And the art of orchestration, in addition to knowing the information we're discussing today, actually a much deeper level, it's really the art of being aware of the color effect volume of each instrument's tessitura and you can do quite a lot with seemingly a little so many of the great orchestrations you can look at them and it can seem like oh there isn't a lot of complicated rocket science here but there's just a great mastery of tessitura yeah confidence in when to use all of the tools in your belt and also a confidence in restraint of when to let people sit out you know not every instrument needs to be playing at all 
times. Typically there are three trombones to a section uh, with one on bass trombone, uh, which is B flat zero to F five. The last thing we need to mention about the trombone is that its pitches are played not with valves like trumpets and horns, but with a slide, which allows for this really colorful, again, a portamento effect or a glissando effect, which allows for fine pitch variants. It's sometimes used in uh, jazz music and kind for of the video a game reference. Way. This would be the Mario World completely. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. That's really interesting. Uh, moving on to uh, the last sort of section of our brass family, the tuba, and their range is from down at D1 up to G4, and it's a very large instrument physically, uh, built with a conical bore like the horn. It has great weight on the bottom, but the interesting thing with this instrument, it is so often apparent as a tuba, and I think it takes some care in orchestrating to have this instrument blend and to not sort of stand out as, oh, there's everyone playing plus a tuba. Because we kind of associate it with, I think, march music, military band, concert band music. It does have that kind of quality. And dare I say, it's a bit farty in its sound. So you dare. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it does take some great care, but is indispensable. And I especially love it. Um, again, just circling back to John Williams, John is known for using it quite frequently as a melodic instrument because right. there is so much color. And often he'll actually use very different instruments. You know, he'll have the tuba and, and uh, piccolo, piccolo you know, yeah. playing a melody octaves and octaves apart from one another. Right. Yeah, there's so much untapped uh, solo potential for the tuba if you're trying to think of a reference. Really, many of the great Star Wars character themes, most of the Jays actually will use solo tuba, whether it's Jabba or the Jawas or Jar Jar, or if there's an upcoming J character in The Last <laughs> Jedi. Right. There was a great uh, tuba theme in the BFG, actually. Oh, it's but I, beautiful. I don't know. Was that a J character? I don't believe it was. It was Jermaine, wasn't it? <laughs> I believe it actually was Jermaine. That's funny. Yeah. Tuba players sometimes double on an instrument called a chimbasso in film orchestras, which has a front-facing bell. It blends better with the trombones, kind of in that register. Uh, but as we mentioned, there are so many alternate or doubled instruments in all the different families of the orchestra. We principally want to focus on the standards today. I'm really excited for the last group of the orchestra, the percussion section. We want to welcome a really special guest. We'd like to welcome for the first time on Underscore the third Brueggemann brother, one of the <laughs> architects of the Supermercado brothers, Carl Brueggemann. Thanks for coming on the show, man. This is crazy. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, it's cool. Carl and I have done a podcast, the Supermercado Brothers, for years. It's a podcast on video game music, and it's really as we described the origins of Underscore. And it's kind of interesting having the tables turned because for years on that show, Carl and I will have Marty on as a guest. And then, uh, you know, ever since this February when we started Underscore, it's Marty and I doing a show together. It's really interesting now, Carl, having you on as a guest because well, we so wanted used to Carl on the show. 
show from the beginning. And this is actually, I think, the perfect opportunity because we're about to get into the percussion section of the orchestra. And there's no one we'd like to talk to more about percussion than Carl, who is an incredible drummer and all-around percussionist. Thank you very much. I, me and Marty are excited to have you on as a guest, Will, on our new podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, right. What's your new podcast? <laughs> it's in the works. No, I, I'm, I'm very happy to be on, guys. Oh, this is awesome. And Carl, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience in playing percussion from, say, drum set to orchestral percussion? Sure. So I've been playing drum set since I was about eight years old. Uh, got my first drum set when I was nine. And one of the first things you learn when you're a drummer is rudimental snare drum playing which already has a direct linkage to the orchestra. So really, sure. I've been in that world of, of drum playing uh, since I was about eight or nine, learned you know all the, the basics of snare drum and bass drum and got kind of a, a very basic foundation in elementary school. But really, it wasn't until high school and college that I started to study and play a lot more uh, in the orchestral style. In college, I was really forced to, as a percussion major, to learn all of the instruments in the percussion family. So, you know, I, I learned how to play the timpani and the bass drum, the snare drum, tambourine, suspended cymbal, marimba, vibraphone, really every everything that you would ever run into in the orchestral world. I think the great thing about the film music orchestral battery and probably the section that has grown so much larger beyond what the concert world ever saw is the percussion section. Uh, right. There have been so many novel and innovative uses of percussion in film music. It's probably one of the greatest and most notable innovations to the orchestra as an entity. Well, I would argue that the use of percussion in the orchestra is one of the clearest ways to signal what was happening in that era. If you think sure. about even before the, the way we think of the orchestra now, the way that drums were used and the way that they're used now, it really is kind of a sure. window into uh, our overall era. Right, the farther back you go, the less percussion there seems to be, starting with timpani, sometimes known as uh, kettle drums. But what's interesting is that it wasn't because they didn't exist, it's because they weren't fully embraced yet into the right. world. Right, sure. The they weren't really accepted by the Western instrument world. In they Europe. do predate and even the kettle drum itself predates the orchestra which is which is a fun fact a lot of people right. don't know that it just wasn't it wasn't embraced in the orchestra until a little bit later and it's interesting how history repeats itself because there were so many trends throughout the history of classical music that kind of embraced what we would call exoticism or embracing sure. music from foreign cultures and it's seemingly in every one of those trends or spikes throughout music history we get an introduction and an influx of more percussion into the orchestra. I think that's true. Well, Carl, so far we've been covering the string section, the woodwind section, and the brass section, and we're now ready to move through the orchestral percussion section. Awesome. And we're really interested in not only hearing some of the features of these instruments, but maybe even some misunderstandings or common misunderstandings sure. around some of these instruments. So let's start with the big guy, the gran casa, the <laughs> yeah. bass drum, concert bass drum. What what do you got to say about that, Carl? I mean, the bass drum is really the heartbeat of the, of the orchestra. Orchestra, even though there's a lot of the history of the orchestra when the percussion isn't necessarily at the forefront, once it started to become more embraced and more widely used, it's hard to go backwards, right? right. Um, if you want a moment of epicness, if you want a hit to be more powerful, if you want to evoke the sound of thunder, there's so many wonderful uses for the bass drum. It's the biggest drum that's typically used in the orchestra, and I think because of that, it's used to double the basses a lot. It's used to add 
a bigger, more epic sound. Well, in trailer music, every time the screen cuts to black, I thought that's where the bass drum was invented. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, that's not the bass drum. That's usually a different drum. But. And uh, what could you say about the art of playing the concert bass drum? It seems like it's different than, say, how you would play the kick drum on a drum set. It's so different, yeah. And so what's interesting about the orchestral bass drum is, first of all, it's played with a mallet in your hand, you know, which right. is very different than the kick pedal, which is the, how it's played on the drum set. Second of all is most orchestral bass drums have a rig so that you can turn them to any angle you want. And different angles have different volumes and, and different timbres as far as how the audience experiences it. Sure. So you can turn the bass drum to many different angles and you can use either one mallet or you can actually roll with it with two mallets. What about the mallets themselves? I know with some percussion, there's different practices on whether you use a soft mallet for this drum as mm -hmm. opposed to a hard mallet. What's the standard for bass drum? The standard for orchestral bass drum is definitely a soft mallet. 80% um, of the time, that's what you're going to hear. There's a few ranges. There is a wood mallet. So basically everything but the, the soft texture that you see on the mallet. So basically oh, just sure. a piece of wood. And that is used uh, if you want a specifically loud sound with a lot of attack. So that will be used. But most of the time, it's going to be a soft mallet. Something that's interesting about notating for percussion is that you have to use a lot more words and language than you do for notating for the other sections because yeah. often there will be one line that just says percussion so you need to give specific instances of when the percussionists need to change to another instrument and what instrument they're playing and sometimes you can get really kind of neurotic about what type of sticks and what types of mallets absolutely and, and, and you can kind of go crazy and that is one thing worth mentioning on this episode is that it is the unique family that you, you're asked to play many different instruments. No right. violin player is going to be asked to then play cello in the later part of the piece. <laughs> right. But if you're playing snare drum, you're going to probably have to run over and play uh, triangle at some point and then maybe run over and play marimba. Well, and and the only exception crazy. to that would be the timpani player. Usually Correct. the timpanist is fixed. Uh, well, Carl, let's move on because we do have so many drums. We can just talk briefly <laughs> yeah. about some of these things. The snare drum, you already talked about it a little bit the snare drum is i would maybe argue the most important drum not just in the in the context of, of orchestral music or classical music but just period it's sure. probably the most pivotal drum in the history of mankind i would argue uh, it does have a very long history going back to about the 13th century and it is a military drum it was used for war and it was used to communicate to soldiers to, for wake-up calls. The first time it was used was a very rudimentary version of the snare drum, and it was used with flutes. So a flute and a snare drum, it was a sound that was used as far back as like the, the 12th century. Well, and that wow. tradition really continued and actually gets to continue through film. Yeah. A few weeks ago during 4th of July, it, it's sort of a family tradition of our parents to watch the movie Gettysburg. And I noted so many instances in that film. That's an incredible score by Randy Edelman. But where there is that flute snare and, and snare flute. drum sort tradition. Sort of Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah, and a lot of times not only will they use snare drum, but they will actually use an old-fashioned thicker snare drum if they wanted to make it sound oh, more sure. old school like Civil a field War. drum or so something. in general the most useful thing that you hear with the snare drum in film music would be adding a military connotation sure. uh, it's used anytime or even a march any anything kind of yeah heroic like that. yeah because that's really the world that it exists from it was brought into the orchestra from that march world from that military world so that's really where it's always going to be an interesting thing when i think of about orchestral snare drum 
you know, a lot of us come up through, say, like a wind ensemble or concert band program in sure. elementary school or high school, where they usually have to find something for every percussionist to do. So there's yeah. usually some kind of snare groove that carries through a whole piece. And it's definitely not something that we hear <laughs> too often in orchestral playing, right? But it, it does make sense if you think about the, the tradition of marches. For marching right. bands and military bands, it would be throughout the whole piece. So in that tradition, it makes total sense. But what's interesting is, yeah, in the orchestral tradition, it's used, thankfully, a lot more tastefully, a lot more sparse. Well, and flipping over to the video game tradition, Carl, something that you and I talk about more regularly, one of my favorite game soundtracks is Super Mario Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And that game, to me, perfectly, it brings an orchestra up to speed to the language of Super Mario Brothers. And often so many of the pieces in that game have snare drum completely throughout. Yeah, so there is almost like a groups. childlike connotation, I think, to what you're saying about well, the, the wind Well, the last ensemble. thing I think we should say about the snare drum, what's very important is when people think of the snare drum nowadays, they think about the style of playing a backbeat uh, sure. Like they'd be played with modern music on a drum kit. But in the orchestra, the snare drum is almost never used in that way. It's, it's used in a rudimentary way. Now, the rudimentary style of drums is specifically related to the snare drum. It came about for the snare drum. So when you learn rudiments as a drummer, you learn diddles and drags and singles and doubles, all those rudiments, it is on the snare drum. So the snare drum has a specific style of rudimentary playing, and that's what you hear in orchestral and film music. And now sometimes in orchestral playing, you'll have multiple percussionists playing snare at the same time. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. You might have two or three. I would say most of the time it's it's one or two, though. Well, let's move on to symbols. This is kind of its own little subcategory. Let's try to keep moving through here because, like we said, there's just so much percussion to touch <laughs> on. We have suspended symbol, crash symbol, tam-tam, gong. Carl, what are some of your thoughts on your favorite symbols and uh, your experiences throughout the years? Well, typically, tam-tam and gong is kind of considered almost its own subfamily because the function sure. in construction is so different. Uh, definitely used, I would say, less often than the crash symbol, the suspended symbol. But very, very effective. You know, there is a specific connotation when you hear a gong. Sometimes you might think of like an Eastern sound just because we've heard that so many times. Sure. But it, it is one of the most striking and epic sounds you can get in the entire orchestra. Right. Is that right. is that gong or tam-tam, which is sometimes uh, bigger than a the gong. wash of noise. Uh, but as far as the cymbals go, the sound now when we think of maybe a modern orchestra, it's hard to imagine a rising swell in this in this big climax without a crash cymbal or without a suspended cymbal. It's so integral to leading the listener into that moment. And really, when you listen to a lot of film music or even slightly modern classical music, that use of the suspended cymbal or the crash cymbal, if you took that away, it would dramatically decrease you know, the emotional effect. Yeah, I really feel the suspended cymbal is one of the most useful and economical tools in the entire orchestra. Because what I find is I'm working actually right now on this opera and it's just a little chamber ensemble. I don't even have any strings. It's all woodwinds, mm -hmm. but then I get percussion, and I'm having them constantly yeah, switch around. Get just by symbol. having yeah. suspended cymbal with these woodwinds, you feel like you have an entire orchestra. Well, the thing that's so great about suspended cymbal, particularly, is it's so expressive. People would be surprised just how expressive you can get. You can get so quiet, so you can barely hear it. And you can get very loud. Well, and there's so many pieces written for just suspended cymbal that mm -hmm. require all kinds of crazy, cool techniques. Yeah, so you know, obviously, there's a lot we could talk about cymbals, but uh, some people refer to a crash symbol as a suspended symbol and they can be interchanged because you can crash with a mallet. 
But there's a different style of symbols that are sometimes referred to as clash symbols, and that's when you actually have straps that you use both hands to, to move the symbols together. And that has a totally different I imagine those are quite difficult to get the hang of. Those are very difficult, and there's a very specific technique to play those. And a lot of times what happens for beginner, even intermediate percussionists, is sometimes if you're a little bit nervous, you try to do a really big clash and nothing happens. You get no sound. (laughs) You sort of cancel Um, the sound. You cancel it out, and, and it's really embarrassing when that happens. But there are typically three different styles of crash cymbals. I think it's Germanic French, and then French. French is, I know French is the lightest, the thinnest style of crash cymbal. Let's move on to some other interesting noise-making devices in the percussion section, tambourine and shakers. This would be in the auxiliary subfamily of sure. the percussion group. Definitely the snare drum, the bass drum, the cymbals, those are the heavy hitters. Those have gone back a long ways. As far as these auxiliary instruments, it's very piece to piece. You know, if sure. you have a specific moment where you want something very soft, but you need a little bit more rhythmic drive, tambourine is a great choice. Uh, it also very uh, is very commonly used for, like Will said, a little bit of exoticism. Something about hearing a tambourine along with maybe like it gives a, it kind uh, of violin. a Latin flavor. Yeah, yeah. So it's used. It's used for just kind of dabs of a little bit more exoticism, or even or, like a Spanish dance. Sure. Right. Yeah, and definitely even more so with the claves. And then now I know with shakers, there's sort of a different style of like orchestral shaker playing. Yeah, right? and and that's another thing is even a shaker is a great example. They're so diverse and there's so many different kinds sure. that are constructed in different ways that are played in different ways that it, it's kind of funny. You know, percussion on its own is already so diverse. And in some right. ways, I, I feel like I wish that they would have divided it to two families <laughs> back in the day sure. because the fact that a piano is in the same family as a bass drum makes no sense to me. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, it, a shaker is a great example. It's actually, there's a lot of different kinds of shakers. That's true. Cause I mean, if a piano is percussion, then pizzicato strings are percussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's literally about the physics of how something is yeah. struck, well, let's talk about the, the triangle. Sure. Yeah. Triangle. Um, I mean, in general, I would say the percussion section might be a little unsung in the orchestra. Sure. Part of that comes from it's. it took a long time for it to be fully embraced. And also it took a long time, not until like maybe the early 20th century, for it to actually be studied like in conservatories and like considered to be an actual thing that was worth studying oh, wow. on its own. So so that that's part of it. But yeah, the triangle is very unsung. It's, it's just so pretty and delicate and it blends so well with uh with woodwinds and with with the higher range instruments just a great great way to just give a little bit more clarity and attack to a specific uh moment and, and it's it all it also can be used for ostinato so it's it has it's a very diverse. little tinny chime sound and the instrument is literally a, a metallic triangle i think the thing that's great about the triangle is it can be used for, for specific moments of accents such as a crash symbol which is never used for ostinato or it can actually be used uh in ostinato similar to like something like a snare drum you might hear like a ding 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 ding, ding, ding. i mean that's more rare but it's it's quite diverse well, we have to talk about the timpani, probably one of the first percussion elements ever introduced into the classical orchestra. Yeah, and, and that was actually a drum that originated from the kettle drum. It used to be called the kettle drum. Even in early orchestral music, they would call them the kettle drums. Out of any of the subfamilies of the percussion, I feel like that should really be its own thing, sure. just because it's one of the few drums that are specifically pitched. Now, what's interesting is the ability to have an exact pitch on a kettle drum or a timpani, that also predates the orchestra. 
So really early kettle drums weren't didn't have an exact pitch because the way they were constructed was very rudimentary and you just it just didn't work. Sure. But I think it was I believe the I want to say maybe like even the 16th or 17th century they updated the kettle drum to be able to be tuned to a specific pitch. So it's interesting that that ability to do that came a long time well, ago. Modern timpanis have these foot pedals that allow you to change pitch really rapidly, even within one piece. You'll have to change the pitch of a drum for changes of key or modulation. And that is by far the hardest percussion instrument to play, in my in my humble opinion. I've had to play it, and you have to use your ear in a way that percussionists are typically not used to doing. Sure. You have to develop a really good, I mean, perfect pitch is ideal. The best timpani players will have perfect pitch and will be able to hum a C and tune it. You can also just develop really good relative pitch and also the muscle memory of remembering how far down your foot has to go to get to uh, maybe like a B flat versus a G. Uh, sure. There's one interesting thing that one of my professors said was that on the timpani, you're always tuning. He's like <laughs> trying to think of it as a glass half full, right? Where you're not out of tune. You're just, you're tuning. You're, you're in the process <laughs> of getting to the note. And there's actually quite a bit of wiggle room because when you double a hit that's already there with the tubas and the basses and stuff, uh, it's not going to sound terrible if it's a whole step off. Sure. It'll sound better if it's right on. But there is quite a bit of wiggle room as you're kind of moving between the notes. But obviously the best timpanists, they, they will be right on. I think it's true to say that a lot of drums, the way they produce sound, there is a mixture of pitched sound and unpitched sound. Mm -hmm. And right. even though the timpani has definite pitch, a lot of the sound that you're hearing, that percussive impact, is also an unpitched noise. Yeah, and there's also so many overtones on the timpani that on their own can right. sound really bad. And so it's a great instrument to double an orchestra because if you hear it on its own, most people would be surprised with maybe how ugly it sounds on its own, but it sounds so perfect. Well, and also doubled. a lot of dynamic range, you know, really soft light timpani playing, mm -hmm. just soft rolls can create kind of an atmosphere, but loud timpani rolls and crescendi are uh, really important as and well. Th and then I think the last thing to say about the timpani is a lot of times, especially early on, you might have orchestral pieces that they only have timpani. That's the only percussion. Right. And that was for a long time, that was kind of the standard where if there's any percussion, it would be just timpani. Yeah, I think a lot of us that might hear a particular moment as, say, a bass drum roll or a mm -hmm. bass drum impact, it is actually a timpani moment. Especially and when you think of the other uses, there's some, some weird ways to play the timpani. You can put towels on it, and you can make it sound right. not like a timpani, too. And I know for writing for the timpani, it tends to be less important to try to match the pitch, like, say, if it's a 2D with basses or celli or something. Mm -hmm. It's a little less important to match that pitch exactly than it is to be in the sweet spot pitch yeah. range of the timpani, where... Exactly. You yeah, can actually sure. have a chance of sort of speaking. Well, let's actually move to sort of a different subsection of the percussion section, the mallet percussion. Like you said, Carl, <laughs> percussionist to has family. to be able to do so much. And this really, yeah, this is, has to be. This a is really family. unfair in some ways to ask a percussionist to be able to be good at all of these things because really it's a totally different skill. When you would talk about some of the mallet instruments that are used in the percussion family, the piano almost doesn't need to be mentioned too much today just because people are so aware of what it is. Sure. Um, but when you have to play marimba, vibraphone, a lot of times you're using three mallets, maybe even four mallets in two hands. Obviously, the advantage of that is you're able to do really fast arpeggios in a, in a way, or block chords even, in a way that other instruments just can't do. Sure. But to be able to do that, to have the dexterity for that, is it takes so long. 
So very difficult, but very important. I feel like a lot of mallet percussion has gone out of favor in some modern film music, but yeah. it was really always a part of the classic film orchestral sound. I mean, you even think about like some of the action music in Star Wars uses very liberal xylophone. Xylophone, absolutely. Yeah. It's all over the place for a really loud, epic sound. But we talk right. about Herman's use of, say, the vibraphone. I think now if we would hear that loud xylophone doubling a hit, it would almost have like a cartoon connotation because it in sure. some ways it's not the subtlest thing to do in the world right we still get a lot of glockenspiel usually oh, for yeah. for those kind of yeah bright, and the glockenspiel is, is one of the most important instruments in the whole orchestra i would argue because sometimes i think it's quite easy especially if you're a listener that's not maybe listening as intently as as you might be otherwise it's actually kind of easy sometimes for lines to be lost in the orchestra kind of just be muddled and when you have the glockenspiel double a line with that harsh attack that metallic sound sometimes it's just what you need to to add clarity to a line often like three or four octaves above a melody (laughs) you know we talked about the piccolo being the highest instrument but the glockenspiel definitely has it beat yep and what sort of mallets uh, are you typically using on, say, a glockenspiel versus a, let's say, a vibraphone or marimba? Very different, almost exclusively metal. Uh, the harder, the better. A lot of times, in my experience, there would be a shortage of, of those metal mallets, and you would have <laughs> to use some sort of plastic, and it just would sound really bad. So most of the iconic uses of that are going to be like brass, are going to be very hard metal small mallets, uh, very different mallets than a lot of times like on the marimba you'd have a softer mallet if you wanted it to be more in the background not as as noticeable. So really it depends on how much you want that attack there. Well and also included within the percussion are some of the keyboard instruments like the celesta. Yeah and and, and again it's just it's almost unfair that this is all in one category but yeah the celesta is obviously very closely related to the piano and I'm sure the training that you would need to to play the piano would would directly relate to the celeste and sure. uh, you know I think it's been said probably by you guys many times how effective that can be in the use of an orchestra by composers right. such as John Williams if you're talking about film music but yeah it's it's a it's a very expressive and beautiful instrument we also have the tubular bells which kind of sound like church bells I think sometimes mm-hmm. they're referred to as chimes uh, but yeah. they're definitely in a, an essential element of the orchestra. To me, whenever a tubular bell hits, it immediately has this religious connotation. There's something yeah. sacred or almost fateful about it. Absolutely. A lot of weight behind the sound, um, not just physically, but just emotionally. There's and they're a lot played of with uh, hammers, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and totally different than, than what you would play on other mallet instruments. Yeah, they're wooden hammers. And what would you say is the art of playing the tubular bells? How hard is sort of the ideal attack? Uh, not super hard. It's actually really hard to, difficult, I should say. It's really difficult to hit just on the right section. You kind of have to hit it diagonally on the side of the top of it. So it's actually really hard to find the sweet spot of it Um, but yeah I mean there's some decent variety and dynamics well Carl let's move on to your favorite section of drums the taiko drums (laughs) yeah and this almost could just be opened up to etc you could just say this is kind of other like like ethnic percussion any other added drums that are not part of the tradition like the orchestral tradition it's just a way of adding something like you said maybe more exoticism or making it clear that it takes place in, in modern times like if you were 
scoring a Civil War movie, you wouldn't have those drums. But if you're scoring a movie that it takes place in New York City and, you know, that he's against the clock and the terrorists are, you know, going to take over, <laughs> then you're going to be using the, those taiko drums. It's funny because taiko drums are a Japanese drum that do have their mm-hmm. own history, but they've just kind of been absorbed into the film orchestra in kind of a crude and sometimes thoughtless way. Well, I mean, yeah, I think their initial use when it's supposed to sound like gladiators or epic, you know, primeval sound mm-hmm. is interesting, but it's just kind of been adopted as the de facto sound of a lot of films. Well, what's interesting is that the use of drums to evoke a sense of humanity, and in general, that is the most important part of percussion and drums is that I think they do evoke the sense of humanity and maybe this primal emotion because they not only were the first musical instrument, they were the first form of communication. So drums have such a long history with human beings. So I think that's been explored many times in, in the orchestra, in the orchestral world and in film music. But yeah, a lot of times it just gets to a point where you're listening to a score and almost for two hours straight, you hear nothing but those big drums. And I think they do lose a lot of effectiveness when you hear nothing but that. Well, and especially <laughs> when they're pre-existing drum loops, right. which is another <laughs> thing that we haven't really touched on. But we have to say, I mean, that's a huge part of the modern a lot of the, film music orchestra. Yeah, and a lot of the taiko drums that we're hearing are daiko. I think is closer to the right pronunciation mm-hmm. are really these uh, samples that or are sometimes found, found yeah. percussion a lot of times with right. modern composers I would say one of the things they're most concerned with is finding a new and odd right. sound and maybe you're hitting like the side of a wall of some building or and something then and post-processing mm-hmm. it and then so that's way. that's really big nowadays well, that, that, the origins of that kind of thing do go back to 20th century concert music there's yeah. a term called music concrete which is about taking existing found sounds in the world and bringing it in but yeah that, that's kind of and, become and that's, a huge part and of that's a music. great point well and that also comes back to what i was saying where it's kind of reflecting of the era after we fully embraced the percussion family we wanted to keep going further with the idea of sounds what else can we bring in what else can we try to you know right because already there's such a loose definition of what we call percussion and we haven't mm-hmm. even gotten into some of the goofy things like the slapstick and the vibra slide whistle and Yes, yeah, slide. I mean, there, there's there's so much kooky and, and, and fun stuff. Well, yeah, I'm quite offended that blocks. you're saying that's kooky. <laughs> Those are serious instruments. <laughs> they they definitely yeah they definitely are very very serious and really critical to the music of cake. <laughs> um, so we've been sort of talking around the drum kit, the mm. Western drum kit, but there's plenty of particularly film orchestral music that does use the drum kit. Uh, what would you say about sort of the drum set uh, as it relates to film music with the orchestra? Uh, it's definitely pretty prevalent. One thing that's very interesting and unique about film music is the use of percussion is one of the things that separates it from other forms of orchestral music. Sure. And I think no more noticeably than when you hear the drum set mix with the orchestra. Uh, it's a way to, to kind of split the difference make something feel rhythmic and driving and modern. I think that's the number one thing is the use of the drum set mixed with the orchestra in like film or a video game feels a lot more modern than just the orchestra. But it has a sense of speed and dexterity and flexibility that a big daiko drum wouldn't have, right? So so yeah, I think I think there's definitely a place for it. It's actually quite hard 
to use it in a way that feels natural, like it's not just like shoehorned in there. There's sure. not a lot of great examples of it outside of film and games. There's, you know, with as far as like concert music goes, there's not a lot of tasteful examples of that. There's a lot of terrible examples of it in like wind, ba- like a uh, concert band. Music, sure, sure. Unfortunately, but yeah, as far as film goes, it's it's definitely there. You know, especially... I think it's almost from the other direction though. I think some film music that uses it well, you almost think of something like. I don't know the Incredibles, which kind it's of more is of a like big band yeah, it's starting from yeah. a big band and augmenting it with other orchestra That's things, a great right. rather than putting forcing the drum set into the pre-existing. Yeah, and I think orchestra. a lot of the drum set stuff that works well, uh, say in like some Brian Tyler music, or I know uh, Warren Balfe for the Lego Batman used Chad from the Red Hot Chili Peppers yeah. drumming on that. But most of that is pre-laid, or what we would say like recorded prior to the orchestra. Absolutely, and the orchestra musicians are at often you know hearing that in their headphones so they're playing to that and that can groove, be which is logistically a lot easier and to... it can be so effective there's definitely reason for that everyone's going to be playing more rhythmically consistent there's going to right. be a sense of drive and action another thing that's very commonly used is you'll have drum set in addition with like maybe some synth sounds or some rock sure. guitars and that's a sound that we're all very familiar with well, I think we should move on to a really important section, probably the last big section that we're going to touch on on today's episode, the keyboard instruments. Right. So as Carl said, we don't really need to add too much to the piano itself. It's probably the most recognized instrument in the Western world, perhaps in the world at large. And I think we can all sort of picture a solo feature moment for a piano and mm-hmm. a score. Thomas Newman is sort of the modern master of how we use solo piano. In well, a, and with in a the exception setting. of piano concerti, it was not a common instrument as part of the classical orchestral sound it really wasn't even until the late romantic era where it Mm -hmm. started becoming introduced in a comfortable sense in orchestral concert music you know outside of like i said piano concertos right um but it's really been a fixture of film music orchestras from the beginning i think part of it has to do with the recording process as that has grown and developed you have the freedom to alter and adjust the levels of instruments in a traditional concert orchestra quite frankly a lot of piano parts just won't carry over an orchestra Uh, but once you have the ability the freedom to adjust faders and everything you can have pianos as a prominent solo feature above where they would acoustically resonate. And also it just becomes a helpful element and glue for supporting right. certain instruments or colors in the orchestra. But the piano feel- is used a lot for doubling in um, sort of a modern film context. And you're not necessarily going to know it, but it might just add clarity to yeah. the pitch at the bottom of the orchestra or some brilliance to some higher Well, the reason why it does make sense to talk about it in the percussion family is because the percussion section is there for support almost more than any other family it's not about necessarily being front and center it's supporting everything else that's happening and that is definitely what you hear with the piano and the use of the orchestra and then similarly to a lot of other percussion instruments as we got more willing to or interested in exploring different styles and sounds you start to hear more crazy ways of using it putting pieces of wood inside the piano and so you do hear some of that you know in the more modern times we also hear uh, and we've heard in many of our film examples hammond organs electric pianos such as the Wurlitzer or the Rhodes or church Rhodes. organ yeah and right. church organ which has become kind of uh, popular flavor in recent decades I know Desplat has used it a lot Hans Zimmer kind of famously used it in Interstellar, Interstellar. how cool yeah. is that 
that. Oh, that was that was great. Yeah, we're not seeing so much of the the Hammond organ electric piano is kind of an invisible doubler the way it was in the 60s 70s and 80s yeah and i think a lot of that is because of the rise of so many synthesizers soft synths and hardware synths mm-hmm. um and really the sky is the limit when it comes to the sound of a synthesizer <laughs> in the era of jerry goldsmith and even to this day with john williams they typically have the synth playing live with the orchestra and it's amps that are coming oh yeah into the room and so they're recording that amp sound but there's a lot of soft synths that are used that all of us that are making kind of computer-based orchestral music certainly are using those sort of soft synth plugins yeah i would argue nowadays the majority of what you hear is going to be done uh, not at the same time as the orchestra is being right and yet typically as pre-lays typically before the recording session there's also something called modular synthesis if you've ever seen uh, a photo in a studio and there's just a wall (laughs) of synthesizers and patch cables that's sort of what we're talking about Uh, someone like junkie xl is a current master of really using modular synthesis to create unique mm-hmm. sounds not just keyboardy synthesizer sounds but percussive whoopy sounds and again the sky is really the limit there's infinite possibilities with these things as we sort of wrap up here we'll kind of touch on the last family that sometimes appears in film music you were mentioning it a few minutes ago carl but uh guitar mm-hmm. and bass whether acoustic or classical guitar or uh say hollow body guitar from maybe more of a, a jazz idiom or a electric guitar distorted or or clean and a lot of times the the drum set and the guitar will be used together for example if you want a slight jazz connotation sure. uh, you even like let's say for example like a score uh, this wouldn't be guitar as much as it might be like saxophone like catch me if you can you're gonna yeah. have more drum set in that score because there's the, a jazz influence there but a lot of times you would have maybe like maybe very softly on the ride cymbal with some guitar and that's that's a very common sound and i think also evoking any sort of spanish or latin american quality having like some almost classical guitar with a lot of vibrato mixed in with the orchestra is a big thing Uh, one of my favorite instances of i guess classical guitar in a film orchestra is actually in john williams dreamworks uh logo music oh my gosh and it's funny how that that Beautiful. sets the stage for so many great movies when we go to the theater. Yeah. <laughs> right. And in addition to the guitar, uh, the electric bass sometimes features. Usually, like you're saying, Carl, these things kind of go together. If we're asking for some kind of rock energy or mm-hmm. like rock band plus orchestra, then we'll sometimes have an electric bass sitting in and, you know, functioning in a way that that is appropriate for rock or pop music mm-hmm. or sometimes you know we need kind of a funkier moment yeah in, in and then underscore. i mean there's when you're talking about film score there's so yeah i think in general the sky's the limit and a lot of times what you hear is you hear a small rock or jazz or funk ensemble as the true core and it's actually layered with orchestral instruments so so in that right. situation the orchestra isn't really the foundation they're actually just you know assisting a smaller ensemble. Well, I think the lesson that we've learned here today is that writing for the orchestra is incredibly complex and <laughs> is really a life's journey to understand, even at a surface level, all of the instruments that you're required to command. And on a deeper level, understanding and being able to write idiomatically for them in, in a way with some confidence and polish for not even just all these interlocking musical lines to work together, but something that the players actually enjoy playing and feel like their instrument is being used to its fullest potential. 
So well said. Yeah, it's imagine, say, if you work in an office, it's not only knowing everyone's name that's your coworker, but <laughs> right. it's knowing all of their strengths and challenges yeah. and somehow giving them material or a project where they can all shine and that they all feel fulfilled and are really giving their best work. Well, I'm glad that percussion finally got hired on full time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's safe to say that this real change is going to help us transition into our next film subject because it is a film that hopefully I'm not giving too much away, makes full and delightful use of a rich Hollywood orchestra. Yeah, I think we could even say this is one of the very definitive scores for the Hollywood orchestra, the classic symphonic sound. Bold claim there, folks. Well, we have a few things to plug just to wrap up the episode today. Carl, since you're here, I'm going to give you first rights. Anything you would like to plug? I guess the only thing I would plug is just if anyone's interested and hasn't listened to uh, the Super Mercado Brothers podcast, a uh, very different style, different, you know, covering video game music. But, uh, you know, music is music. And if you're a fan of Absolutely. music and talking about music and composition and melody and harmony, uh, you might enjoy that podcast as well. Marty's on it as a guest frequently. Going to have to try to get him on it fairly <laughs> soon here. It's been a while. It has uh, been a while. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the only thing I think I need to plug. You can follow us at Marcado Bros on Twitter. It's weird. I asked you to plug, but now it's like <laughs> it's also something that I'm a part of. <laughs> I feel strangely guilty. Well, and you guys are just about to start a brand new season of the show, right? Yeah. Oh, we, that's true. We just finished recording the finale of our 11th season, so we'll be starting uh, for our 12th season. So oh, those are always fun. great. Well, Marty, you have something exciting to plug now as well, a new podcast on the Marcado Brothers Network. That's right. We're now three podcasts strong mm -hmm. on the Marcado Brothers Network. Last week, we debuted our first episode of Heroes 3, Adventures in Asian Cinema, which is a podcast that I'm happy to co-host with our friends Matthew and Carlos. And this podcast is going to be every other week. Well, I think we should probably wrap things up. Again, we appreciate all of you who leave a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners to find out about Underscore. So we really appreciate those of you who have done that. You can find every episode of this show at underscorepodcast.com. And you can also send us any of your questions, comments, concerns, or thoughts for the show to our email address, theunderscoreshow at gmail.com. You can also follow us on all forms of social media, Facebook. YouTube. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Peace out. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.